Okay, this is it. The last time I'm going to be able to remind you that Best of Left is nominated for a podcast award and that you can help us win by voting once each day between now and March 24th at podcastawards.com. We are up for the top prize, the People's Choice category this year, and our friends over at the Majority Report are up for their fourth consecutive News and Politics Award. This is the final sprint, so let's dig in and push progressive media over the finish line by setting a daily reminder for yourself to vote each day for both Best of Left and Majority Report, of course, until voting closes. And don't forget to verify each of your votes when they send you an email verification. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Democracy Now!, On the Media, and the award-winning Majority Report. Here in Washington, D.C., We've got this strange guy in town. And, you know, back in 2002, he came to the United States and he spoke before Congress. And he said, and I quote, If you take out Saddam, Saddam's regime, I guarantee you that it will have enormous positive reverberations in the region. Bibi Netanyahu, 2002, speaking before the United States House of Representatives, United States Congress, as a private citizen. If you take out Saddam, Saddam's regime, I guarantee you that it will have an enormous positive reverberations on the region. Right, so we took out Saddam's regime and replaced it with a largely Shia Regime, which caused all the Sunnis who were, you know, the army was almost entirely Sunni because, you know, Saddam had organized things that way. You had to be a Ba'ath Party member, blah, blah, blah. And so the Sunnis then developed this, like, kind of underground network and started fighting back. And a good chunk, probably in the country of Iraq, probably 70, 80% of the people who call themselves Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL or, or whatever, are the old Iraqi army. So it's sort of like, you know, okay, you want to hear Netanyahu's speech? Just go back to 2002 and listen to any of George Bush's speeches. It's the same guy. Bibi Netanyahu, George W. Bush, neocons, right-wingers, people who believe that war solves problems. This, you know, to me, this is just astonishing that that the Prime Minister of Israel would take an American Republican political operative who was the protege of Frank Luntz and have him renounce his American citizenship, so his citizenship is exclusively Israeli, and then become the the Israeli ambassador to the United States. Ron Dermer, I believe his name is. And then have his ambassador negotiate with the Republican Speaker of the House without informing the president, without informing anybody, to come and make another sales pitch to the to Congress. For what? One thing that I find fascinating, this is a, a, a an Israeli news agency this morning. I have this uh, via Victoria Jones from the Talk Radio News Service in her daily uh, newsletter to the press. 
She writes, an Israeli news agency has cited a Kuwaiti newspaper report claiming that President Obama thwarted an Israeli military attack against Iran's nuclear facilities in 2014, last year, by threatening to shoot down Israeli jets before they could reach their targets in Iran. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is reportedly forced to abort the planned Iraq attack. The Israeli news agency is the Israel National News. You know you like neocons? Apparently you like Bibi and and you like John. And frankly, it's not Iran. In my in, in here's now here's my little editorial opinion piece. Netanyahu is not here, as far as I can tell. I mean, time may prove that I'm wrong, but Netanyahu is not here to say we have to do something to or about Iran. Now, keep in mind, Iran has signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Agreement. They are enriching uranium, but only to the level necessary for their nuclear power plants, which they want to have as a member of the modern world. Keep in mind, Barack Obama just went over to India, and what did he? What kind of a deal did he work out with President Modi? Hey, have some nuclear power plants. That's what we do. We've got very, very large corporations that make large political contributions to both parties. So our politicians go overseas. What do they do? They sell nuclear power plants. Iran has one. Everybody has one, it seems. It's a stupid way to make electricity, but what can you say? But Netanyahu is not, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, we'll find out tomorrow, I suppose, when he speaks before Congress. He spoke this morning before APEC. To the best of my knowledge, he's not here to say, let's blow up Iran's nuclear facilities, as apparently he tried to do last year and Obama stopped him. This is not about that. At least as far as we can tell. It is not about, uh, you know, hey, United States, would you join me in doing this? No, apparently all it is is he doesn't want us having to deal with Iran. It's coming across, it seems, at least to me, it seems like what's really going on here, what he's really saying is we don't want you to have a relationship with this country, with Iran, this country that we view as a competitor slash enemy in the region. In fact, what he said, I mean, this is the exact quote he said earlier this morning, we are strongly opposed to the agreement being formulated between the world powers and Iran that could endanger Israel's very existence. Yeah, it's not going to endanger Israel's very existence. Israel, by the way, has lots and lots of nuclear weapons. And I really don't think that even the craziest of the Ayatollahs are suicidal. And they have issued a fatwa, you know, a, a religious ruling, saying that nuclear weapons are a violation of Islam that Iran would never build nuclear weapons. And so far, it looks like they're keeping to that. Here's here's where it gets really interesting. A, A group inside Israel, former commanders of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, their army, Mossad, their intelligence, their equivalent of the the CIA, Shin Bet, and the Israeli police blast Netanyahu for his speech to Congress. This is what Major General 
Amon, Amnon Reshef. And, and by the way, why aren't we hearing all the things that I just shared with you? Why aren't we, why aren't we seeing this on our television? Major General Amnon Reshef, former head of the Israeli Army's Armored Corps, on behalf of 200 top Israeli generals and top security officials, said, and I quote, when the Israeli Prime Minister argues that his speech will stop Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons, he is not only misleading Israel, he is strengthening Iran. 200 retired Israeli generals and top security officials. A lot of people in Israel very embarrassed today by their prime minister and our Republican Speaker of the House and Frank Luntz. You know, by what's going on here. I'm embarrassed by my past actions and even more ashamed by my present thoughts and future endeavors to clear my name. I'm embarrassed by my past actions and even more ashamed by my present thoughts and future endeavors to clear my name. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I'm in embarrassed. And it's all adding up. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I'm in embarrassment. And it's all adding up. I'm preoccupied with self-indulgency to see what you provided me. I fully appreciate your offering. Prime Minister Netanyahu giving a speech in front of Congress, getting standing ovations left and right. Um, I, people don't talk nearly enough about what other parts of the Israeli government have said about Netanyahu. Now, on this show, we told you former leaders of Mossad and Shin Bet have said, watch out, this guy believes in old prophecies, he's not listening to reason, he's not listening to the evidence that we're presenting him. In this speech, he says that Iran is weeks away from nuclear weapons, or could be weeks away from nuclear weapons. That's just pure fantasy, not connected to facts, reason, logic, at all, even according to Mossad, according to leaked uh, reports from Mossad. Okay, so... Um, in this speech, he's not going to go in that direction, is he? I mean, he's trying to talk us into not negotiating with Iran. You know what he starts talking about? He starts talking about the powerful Persian viceroy named Haman. What? He's talking about something in the Bible, in the Old Testament from 2,000 years ago, or more than 2,000 years ago. And how about how Queen Esther stopped Haman? What the fuck are you talking about? You see, this lunatic is like our right-wing lunatics here in America. When, like Bush told the leader of France before the Iraq war, we have to go stop Saddam Hussein because Gog and Magog are going to come out of Iraq, according to the Bible. The French leader had to go to his aides and ask him, what the fuck is Gog and Magog? These lunatics believe in the old scriptures from thousands of years ago when they thought that the stars were little... Holes that they had pricked in heaven to show you the light of heaven. The, the rabbis wrote that stuff down. And then eventually the Christians came along. They wrote other ridiculous things down. And the Muslims came and they wrote other ridiculous things down. And they say, oh, Iran believes in prophecies. And they're suicidal. And, they're, and they think that you know the next coming is coming. What are you talking about here? This guy's giving a speech to the U.S. Congress about Haman and Esther. Okay. And then what's he going to do? Of course, he's going to press our buttons, right? Uh, oh, Reference to uh, how Iran is like, okay, can you fill in the brain? Iran, Iran is like the Nazis, of course. Here, let's watch. Listen to Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, Iran's chief terrorist proxy. He said, if all the Jews gather in Israel 
It will save us the trouble of chasing them down around the world. But Iran's regime is not merely a Jewish problem, any more than the Nazi regime was merely a Jewish problem. The six million Jews murdered by the Nazis were but a fraction of the 60 million people killed in World War II. So too, Iran's regime poses a grave threat, not only to Israel, but also to the peace of the entire world. Of course, uh, anyone who opposes uh, the right-wing government of Israel is what? A Nazi. That's easy. Now, wait, we're not done yet. Uh, you can't just have one reference to the Holocaust. Let's go for a second. With us today is Holocaust survivor and Nobel Prize winner, Elie Wiesel. Now, I wish I could promise you, Elie, that the lessons of history have been learned. I can only urge the leaders of the world not to repeat the mistakes of the past, not to sacrifice the future for the present, not to ignore aggression in the hopes of gaining an illusory peace. But I can guarantee you this. The days when the Jewish people remain passive in the face of genocidal enemies, those days are over. Look, such an easy thing to do. Uh, okay, yeah, uh, my enemies are all the Nazis, and if we don't do anything, well, obviously it'll be a genocide and a holocaust, so I win, you lose. No, you don't, okay? Uh, I've supported the left-wing uh, prime ministers of Israel before. I've supported the people who made peace deals. Uh, they make sense. You know what? They can make the same argument. Well, I'm the prime minister of Israel. Uh, if you don't support a peace deal, uh, holocaust, genocide, Nazis. See, there's no logical connection there, but he gets to throw it around anyway. He's dealing that, as they used to say back in the old days, from the bottom of the deck. Uh, and he talks about aggression. He is the aggression. <laughs> He's not worried about the danger. He is the danger. He's the one that wants to start wars. He's the one that has started wars. And right now he's saying no peace deal, a peace deal that would eliminate Iran's nuclear program. He doesn't want it because he doesn't want peace. He wants aggression. Clarity here. Who are your enemies? Because I, we're fighting ISIS, but Iran is also fighting ISIS. Now, for example, and remember, Iran helped us with Afghanistan. I don't know if you remember this. After 9-11, Iranians stood with us including their government, said, we're with you. Now, here's what you have to understand. The Iranians are Shia, and the people who did 9-11 are Sunni. ISIS is Sunni. They don't like one another, okay? And they've been fighting for longer than the U.S. has been around. But that's nuance. Neocons don't do nuance. Our neocons like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld just attack random Middle Eastern countries, go, Shia, Sunni, I can't tell the difference. Let's see what happens. That's what we did in Iraq, like a drunk sailor. And now... Then, yeah, I was going to say, let's do it again. I can't tell the difference. Who cares? Watch. The ideology of Iran's revolutionary regime is deeply rooted in militant Islam. And that's why this regime will always be an enemy of America. And don't be fooled. The battle between Iran and ISIS doesn't turn Iran into a friend of America. Iran and ISIS are competing for the crown of militant Islam. One calls itself the Islamic Republic. The other calls itself the Islamic State. Both want to impose a militant Islamic empire, first on the region and then on the entire world. They just disagree among themselves who will be the ruler of that empire. 
In this deadly game of thrones, there's no place for America or for Israel. No peace for Christians, Jews, or Muslims who don't share the Islamist medieval creed. No rights for women, no freedom for anyone. So when it comes to Iran and ISIS, the enemy of your enemy is your enemy. Perfect. There it is in a nutshell. For the hawk right-wingers, there are only enemies. There are no allies. There's no negotiation. There's no peace. There's never a normal, peaceful, just resolution. There's only war. Everything Netanyahu sees as an enemy. That guy's an enemy. That guy's an enemy. Hey, maybe I could do a strategic alliance against the guys who are actually threatening. No, 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 no. Everyone is an enemy. Do you know that Iran already offered us a fantastic deal back in 2004 that would have stopped their uranium enrichment before it even began? It would have, it might have even uh, taken away money, arms, resources from Hezbollah. It was a fantastic deal. Do you know why we turned it down? Because Dick Cheney, our neocon here, said, quote, we don't negotiate with evil. If they thought we don't negotiate with evil, well, we never would have had the deal between the Egyptians and the Israelis. And we would have been at war, Israel would have been at, and then so by proxy, we would have been at war with Egypt for the last, what, 40 years. The idea that you don't negotiate with evil is profoundly stupid. And that's what these right-wingers live and breathe. So, I... I didn't enjoy any part of this speech. I found it obnoxious. I found the, the very existence of the speech obnoxious. She should have never came and gave us a speech. The idea that he's going to tell us exactly how to conduct our negotiations is obnoxious. And his ideas for the way to conduct affairs is obnoxious. I don't agree with any of it. And piece by piece, I up my ways by every line I speak. Week by week, and years by the month, I seek what I seek, and y'all just make it up. Ralph, last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed Congress, where he talked about the current nuclear negotiations between the U.S. and Iran. In his speech, he said, This deal won't be a farewell to arms. It would be a farewell to arms control. And the Middle East would soon be crisscrossed by nuclear tripwires. A region where small skirmishes can trigger big wars would turn into a nuclear tinderbox. And this week, 47 Republican senators, led by freshman Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, apparently circumventing all official diplomatic protocol, sent a letter to the Iranian leadership in an attempt to undercut the negotiations going on between the White House and Tehran. This was so outrageous that even the conservative New York Daily News printed a cover with the pictures of Cotton, Mitch McConnell, Ted Cruz, and Rand Paul, under the headline, Traitors. What do you think of all this going on, Ralph? Well, the first impression is we've got a warmongering Congress, a majority. They just want more wars that their children will never have to fight in. Other poor whites, blacks, Latinos will have to go over, get into the quagmire, kill and die overseas. 
so this is what really is troubling about Senator McConnell and Congressman John Boehner. And Boehner's invitation to Prime Minister Netanyahu was not just a violation of protocol and an insult to the conduct of foreign relations by President Obama. It was basically an attempt to hustle the war parties, the military-industrial complex, in pushing more and more toward a militaristic approach toward Iran. And who was the spokesman? It was the Prime Minister of Israel that refuses to sign the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, that developed its own nuclear weapons in secrecy back in the 60s and 70s. In fact, according to Cy Hirsch's book, purloined not just some of the knowledge, but maybe some of the enriched uranium from the U.S., and has about 200 ready-to-fire nuclear weapons now. And Netanyahu is talking about Iran, a country that hasn't invaded anybody in 250 years, a country the size of Massachusetts in terms of its GDP economy with very impoverished people, 77 million Iranians, surrounded by the U.S. military on the east in Afghanistan, on the west in Iraq, and southern part, the whole Persian Gulf and the mighty U.S. Navy. So I was astonished by this. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in Congress. Consider this. He gave a 42-minute speech before the joint session of Congress, his third time, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He was given 23 standing ovations that took up 10 minutes. 23 standing ovations. I don't know if a president of the United States gets that. And the tragedy is it was a totally one-sided propaganda demonstration. And so I wrote a column a few days ago entitled Netanyahu, the other Israelis, and Bobby Burns. And it was clear that the other Israeli opinion, which represents major retired heads of the intelligence agencies, the Israeli FBI, the Israeli military, leading politicians, disagree with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his Likud coalition. They have stood up at press conferences in, in Israel. They have stood up in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. But they are blocked for 60 years, by the way from having a congressional hearing. So that's why I titled it Netanyahu and the other Israelis. Why did I say Bobby Burns? Because, as we all know from high school, the great Scottish poet, who often is called Robert Burns or Robbie Burns, taught us the crucial empathy in one line. And here is his one line. Quote, Oh, would some power the gift he give us to see ourselves as others see us. End quote. And so if you were the Iranians responding to Netanyahu, you would not only point out that Israel has 200 weapons and refuses inspection because it doesn't belong to the treaty, which Iran does, and that's why it's had international inspections. But it's not as if Israel hasn't threatened Iran with annihilation, sent spies to sabotage and slay Iranian scientists, and worked with its Arab allies to undermine the Iranian regime. The Iranians would say, it's as if the Iranians, we the Iranians, don't remember that the United States overthrew our popular elected prime minister, Mossadegh, in 1953, in order to reinstate the Anglo-American oil company and the Shah's dictatorship for 26 more years. You know, it's as if the Iranians don't mourn the loss of hundreds of thousands of their soldiers and civilians killed by Saddam Hussein's brutal invasion of their country from 1980 to 1988, 
with the military intelligence and diplomatic support of the United States. You know, it's, it's as if the Iranians are not entitled to feel frightened. They don't have to be scared of us, and they don't have to be scared of Israel. When George W. Bush named Iran one of the three axes of evil, along with Iraq and North Korea, and then proceeded to destroy Iraq, funny, the Iranians thought they were next. Well, they shouldn't have felt that way, says our politicians. It isn't as if the Iranian people are not suffering in terms of their health care from economic boycotts, which are underway now, sanctions, which by impacting disproportionately civilian health and safety, violate international law. And we have evidence that Iranians are not being treated with adequate health care, diagnostic equipment, catheters, because of this boycott. And it isn't if Iran hasn't proposed a serious plan to George W. Bush over 10 years ago to settle disputes and establish a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East, which Mr. Bush completely ignored. The Iranians did not make it public because they have their hardliners and they just sent it to the White House and the State Department under diplomatic privacy. And finally, here's the irony, David and Steve. It's Iranian soldiers now that are relieving us of the burden in Iraq and fighting ISIS and losing hundreds of their soldiers. Of course, they have a purpose there. They want to dominate Iraq. But what would happen if they weren't beating back ISIS and the air attacks from the U.S. is not turning the tide sufficiently, the demand would be to send some GIs more over there to kill and die. You want to get the whole column, it's on nader.org, and you can sign up free and get my weekly column automatically. But don't you find it really amazing when you look at the Sunday talk shows, when you look at the network news, and it's not just Fox News, that there's never anybody on who gives the other side of how the Iranians are looking at us. And while we don't like their belligerent words, they have suffered belligerent slaughter and deeds. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. We begin today's show looking at the fallout from the open letter sent earlier this week by Republican lawmakers warning Iran against a nuclear deal with the U.S. 
On Monday, a group of 47 Republican senators released the letter, which reads in part, quote, We will consider any agreement regarding your nuclear weapons program that is not approved by the Congress as nothing more than an executive agreement between President Obama and Ayatollah Khamenei. Iran's Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif dismissed the letter as propaganda. This is a propaganda ploy and bears no legal value. This shows how worried one group is. There is no agreement in place yet, and one group is speaking about its content. In any case, a propaganda move has begun with Netanyahu's address to Congress, and this is also another propaganda ploy. It's regrettable that there is a group who are against reaching a deal. Of course, we insist that if we do reach a deal, it has to be one in which the rights of our people are observed, and we are sure that there are ways to achieve this result. Zarif went on to warn, quote, if the next administration revokes any agreement with the stroke of a pen, as they boast, it will have simply committed a blatant violation of international law. Secretary of State John Kerry responded to the letter on Wednesday. My uh, reaction uh, to the letter was utter disbelief. Uh, during my 29 years here in the Senate, I never heard of, nor even uh, heard of it being proposed, anything comparable to this. Uh, if I had, I can guarantee you, no matter what the issue and no matter who was president, um, I would have certainly rejected it, I think. No one is questioning anybody's right to dissent. Any senator can go to the floor any day and raise any of the questions that were raised in that. But the right uh, to the leaders in the middle of a negotiation, particularly the leaders that, that they have criticized other people for even engaging with or writing to, to write them and suggest that, uh, uh, that uh, they're going to give a constitutional lesson, which, by the way, was absolutely incorrect, is quite stunning. Uh, this letter ignores more than two centuries of precedent in the conduct of American foreign policy. According to the website Loblaw, the senator who spearheaded the letter, freshman Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton, received nearly $1 million in donations to his election campaign efforts last year from the Emergency Committee for Israel, run by neoconservative pundit Bill Kristol. The Intercept reports Cotton was set to appear at a secretive meeting of weapons contractors the day after sending the letter. Secretary of State John Kerry returns to Switzerland Sunday in a bid to reach a nuclear deal before a March 31st deadline. To talk more about the letter and what's at stake in the nuclear negotiations, we're joined by two guests. Hillary Mann-Leverett is with us, served as National Security Council in the National Security Council under Presidents Clinton and Bush from 2001 to 3. She was a U.S. negotiator with Iran on Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda and Iraq, in which capacity she negotiated directly with Iran's present foreign minister, Javad Zarif. She is the CEO of the political risk consultancy firm, she will join Georgetown University as a visiting scholar next month. She's co-author of Going to Tehran, Why America Must Accept the Islamic Republic of Iran. Ali Qarib is also with us, contributor to The Nation magazine. His most recent piece is headlined, Meet Tom Cotton, the senator behind the Republicans' letter to Iran. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Hillary Manlever, let's begin with you. Talk about the significance and the effect of this letter, how unusual it is um, where was it sent? Who sent it? 
It, it really is unprecedented from as far as I can determine and as far as legal scholars that I, I've canvassed can, can determine. It is, it is really unprecedented. It's really tantamount of you could imagine during the 1960s if the Republicans in Congress had then written to the Soviet leader, Khrushchev, warning him not to negotiate with Kennedy over the Cuban Missile Crisis because the United States would bomb the Soviet Union uh, two years later if the Republicans won the election. It's really tantamount to that kind of reckless interference and dangerous rec reckless interference uh, for, for U.S. interests. The effect here, the conventional wisdom, I think, in Washington is the effect has, has served to just uh, portray the Republicans as somewhat ignorant, or really ignorant, and marginalized. But I think it actually is having a little bit more of, a, of an effect that should be taken seriously. In that letter, the letter that, that Nirmeen read the, the quote from, that specifically honed in on how the Republicans warned that this agreement would be just between President Obama and Ayatollah Khamenei is very significant. Any agreement that would be reached between the United States and Iran, first of all, Pres uh, Secretary Kerry said yesterday before Congress, would not be legally binding. So whether someone signs it to begin with is a question. But even if someone were to sign it, it would be Secretary Kerry who's been negotiating it for the United States, and it would be Foreign Minister Zarif on the Iranian side. It wouldn't be Ayatollah Khamenei. I think that that letter was, that sentence was inserted to make this an issue of who is President Obama, really to get to the ethnic and identity issues that the Republicans in particular have been pressing here in Washington, that somehow this is about, this is about Islam and Islamic radicalism and Muslims, and to tie them into this package as Prime Minister Netanyahu did when he came to Washington and made his speech equating the Islamic Republic of Iran to the Islamic State, that there are two sides of the same coin. In that context, President Obama has been in some ways eerily silent, and I think this is a serious mistake. It behooves the president to make the case, the strategic case to the American people, why a fundamentally different relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran is in America's interests. Not that we're doing Iran a favor to welcome them back into the international community. Instead, that this is critically important for the United States, that after a decade of disastrous wars in the Middle East, we need a fundamentally different policy, and that starts with a fundamentally different relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran. But I'm afraid the administration isn't making that case because they don't want in some ways to be seen as liking the Ayatollah or uh, Islamists uh, in Iran or elsewhere. And that's going to be a problem going forward with any deal, even if there's some sort of technical agreement by the end of the month. That's going to be a problem going forward, the administration's inability to embrace a fundamentally different relationship with, with the Islamic Republic of Iran, and I stress the Islamic Republic of Iran.
This week's Political Punch and Judy show comes courtesy of freshman Senator Tom Cotton, an open letter to the Iranian leadership signed by 47 Republican senators offering a lesson on American democracy and warning them to reject President Obama's deal on nuclear power. The letter was roundly condemned in the media, even by outlets that oppose the deal. Fox's Megyn Kelly. But what's the and point they, in writing to the Iranian mullahs? I mean, you know, like, what are you going to do? They, they dismissed it already, like, pfft, whatever. And you've offended the Obama administration, and you may have offended some of the Democrats who would have come over with the Republicans, if, depending on what happens with this deal, uh, to have a stronger say in the Senate. There were brief rumblings of illegality, even treason. Some, like John McCain, conceded he may have signed a little hastily. Anonymous Republican aides said the letter was intended to be cheap. Then the defensive strategy changed to claiming moral equivalency. The letter, one senator declared, was the same as Nancy Pelosi's meeting some years back with Syria's Bashar al-Assad, although three Republican congressmen had made that trip before her and she was accompanied by State Department officials. Then the letter signers changed tack again and dug in. They sent it and they meant it. As the world clucked, the U.S. media duly chronicled the bathos. But according to Jamal Abdi, policy director for the National Iranian American Council, the impact could extend far beyond mere political theater. Any sort of negotiation, if you're negotiating for a home loan or you're trying to buy a car, this is the phase where we're now you know, going over the fine print and Congress has effectively come in and given the United States a bad credit report. We may not be able to honor our side of the deal. And so what that does is it has the potential of driving that cost up. Love that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that Americans have gotten an accurate sense of what's gone on and what the potential impact is from our own media? There has been a lack of clarity on whether these negotiations are the right thing or the wrong thing. This is the entry point for a lot of media consumers of what is happening at these negotiations. There has been this tendency to treat this letter more as this superficial political stunt, mm -hmm. but not recognizing the real implications it's going to have for this very important you know, national security and foreign policy issue. And the Iranian foreign minister also offered a bit of snark of his own back at Tom Cotton, did he not? And that's been covered in the press? Yeah. Uh, so Tom Cotton had the letter translated into Persian. He tweeted it at Zarif, and he said, in case you missed it, my letter to your country translated for you. Zarif was educated in the United States. He has a Ph.D. in international law. He knows the American system very well and responded shortly after with a, in case you missed it, my response in English. <laughs> now, you've noted that there are some marked similarities between some precincts of the American media and that of the Iranian press. Well, for a long time, there has been a symbiotic relationship between the hardliners in Iran and the hardliners we have here in the United States. So... Anytime Ahmadinejad was saying some horrible thing, that was used in the U.S. press and by Fox News and some of the more conservative outlets. And even to this day, groups like United Against Nuclear Iran or the pro-Israel groups like AIPAC are still using Ahmadinejad quotes. And the guy's not even the president anymore. He's completely marginalized and does not have a lot of political power in Iran. 
And so this uh, symbiotic relationship you're talking about, tell me how it plays out in the hardline Iranian press. For instance, you know, recently there was the Benjamin Netanyahu address to Congress. When Netanyahu came and made his speech, Rafsanjani, the former president of Iran, the moderate political figure, he accused the hardliners of having the same positions as Netanyahu. He said, this is a bad deal, we shouldn't sign it. The hardest line of the hardline outlets, Kahan, <laughs> defended themselves, and they ran a, a, one of their typical sort of blustery editorials, and they said, no, Netanyahu's speech was a ploy. He actually supports the deal. <laughs> <laughs> Some Republicans do seem to be trying to walk it back. Now that it's been processed in the media and there's been such a harsh backlash from the White House and there's been something like 50 editorials against the letter, a lot of Republicans have not necessarily been defending it. That being said, you're starting to see them pivot a little bit. And they're saying, okay, this was maybe not good diplomacy, but what the letter said is accurate. A lot of folks who sign on to this letter do think that there is sort of a second life for this thing and that they will be vindicated in the end if they carry it out a few steps further. So you don't think then that this could be the moment when legislators learn to count to ten before indulging in such stunts? As far as Tom Cotton is concerned, look at all the media coverage he's gotten for this. I mean, he's now a superstar. You know, it reminds me of the episode a couple of years ago during the State of the Union with the House Republican who shouted, you lie, at President Obama. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is an embarrassment, he needs to apologize. But he turned around and had a record-breaking fundraiser the next day. I don't know that Tom Cotton is really licking his wounds. He's probably out there raising more money. John Kerry was on CBS News this weekend, and it was funny because, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I felt like the CBS correspondent was like, this is a great hook for us. Will John Kerry apologize to the Iranians about the letter that the Republicans sent? Because you know how... The whole right-wing meme is that the Obama administration does nothing but apologize to our enemies. And uh, so this is sort of like a uh, almost a trick question. Will you apologize on behalf of the Republicans? Here is John Kerry sounding, uh, I would say, uncharacteristically on top of his game. I'm not saying that he's not on top of his game, but in general, I'm not making an assessment there. I'm just saying that he doesn't, there's not a lot of times where I hear John Kerry say something and go, wow, he sounded very strong and determined and Fuck like, you. Right. Uh, Boom, so, right. you just got carried. There you go. I don't know, sometimes, uh, whatever. That's I'm probably like the only says. person who likes Kerry. Go ahead. I, I, don't, I like Kerry. I mean, I don't love him, but this is, this is impressive. Number two. And by the way, we're not, just, this is not just the United States of America negotiating. This is China, Russia, Germany, France, Great Britain. So how do you clear the air? Are you going to apologize for this letter? Not on your life. I'm not going to apologize for the 
uh, for an unconstitutional and unthought-out action by somebody who's been in the United States Senate for 60-some days. That's just inappropriate. Uh, I will explain very clearly that Congress does not have the right to change an executive agreement. Another president may have a different view about it. But if we do our job correctly, all of these nations, they all have an interest in making sure this is, in fact, a proven peaceful program. And it would be derelict if we allow some gaping hole in this program that uh, doesn't do so. Uh, but, but, you know, let's see what it is first. And, and I think this applies to everybody, incidentally, who's been trying to judge this before, in fact, the deal, if it can be sealed, is sealed. You've made the point this is an international agreement. This isn't just the U.S. and Iran. But Senator Chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, said the decision to bypass Congress and instead go to the U.N. and allow them to vote on some of this deal is a direct affront to the American people. Well, with all due respect, do look, I do really disagree with that judgment, and I talked to him about it the other day and made it clear. We are negotiating under the auspices, to some degree, of the United Nations. So just as Congress has to vote to lift sanctions, so Congress does have a vote, so does the United Nations have to lift some sanctions at some point in time. Well, that's on uh, sanctions, but to authorize this deal, do no, you see Congress having a role? <laughs> Congress has a role. We have had over 205 briefings, phone calls, discussions with Congress. 119 of them have taken place since January of this year. We have been in full discussion with Congress on this. We've been in full discussion with allies in the region. We have had our team go to Israel or meet with Israelis in Washington or elsewhere to brief them regularly in this process. This isn't, uh, you know, a complete mystery. And the fact is that, uh, uh, but we also have been operating under a rule that everybody understands. Nothing is agreed to until everything is agreed to. And so there you have it. And uh, so good for Kerry, uh, both. I mean, but you could really see in that question, um, are we going, I'm sorry. Are we going to are we going to apologize? I mean, that was the one time I think I've ever heard uh, John Kerry where I thought that he was just about to say F no. No. Are you kidding? That guy's an idiot. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capitalism. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. Oh, man.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, no war with Iran. Still. Again, as in, they've been singing this song for over a decade now, and it's still a bad idea. So here we are, another foreign policy episode where neocons have pushed us to the seeming brink of an unnecessary and very likely deadly and expensive war. Not like there's any other kind, after all. The once-proud flagship paper, The Washington Post, is predictably churning out Sunday edition opinion pieces on why we should be at war with Iran yesterday, if possible. Here's the thing, though. It's not just progressives and hippie peace lovers who think this is a bad idea. Daniel Larison, senior editor of an outlet called The American Conservative, wrote this under the title, The Appalling Case for an Unnecessary War with Iran. Quote, War is definitely not the only option with Iran, and it is by far the most costly and pointless of the available options, unquote. I couldn't agree more. One loud voice on the Foreign Relations Committee is pushing back and demanding some semblance of sanity. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, has a petition up at moveon.org titled, The U.S. Senate Should Continue to Give Diplomacy with Iran a Chance. He's hardly overreaching, requesting that his colleagues not leap to bomb dropping, but instead give the lengthy process of negotiating a chance before doing what cannot be undone. Both Senator Murphy's petition and the one from Daily Co's and Roots Action titled simply No War with Iran also ask Congress to refrain from additional sanctions. Through rootsaction.org slash take hyphen action, you can send your representatives this simple message, quote, it is reckless and dangerous to call for new sanctions that will risk us going into war. As a constituent, I urge you to please reject any new sanctions, unquote. And as always, you can also write, call, and tweet at your congressional representatives through contacting the congress.org. Until taking military action becomes political suicide, these moments will continue to arise, and we must continue to speak out and push back through every avenue available. The segment notes include all the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If preventing yet another war of choice matters, to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about peaceful foreign policy options via social media so that others in your network can speak out too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how we make a difference in this fickle world of change. While the Obama administration is in the middle of negotiations with Iran over their possible nuclear program, 47 members of the U.S. Senate sent leaders in Iran a letter undermining any possible negotiation that the, that the Obama administration could possibly come up with. Now, that letter was led by a freshman senator by the name of Tom Cotton. And for those of you who want a little update or refresher on what that letter said, it basically indicated that uh, the letter was to inform Iran's leaders that such an agreement would be nothing more than an executive agreement between President Obama and Ayatollah Khomeini. The next president could revoke such an executive agreement with the stroke of a pen, and future Congresses could modify the terms of the agreement at any time. Now, that letter was unprecedented, because regardless of what kind of political divide happens in the United States, it usually ends 
before it involves actual foreign policy or negotiations between the executive branch of government and any other country. But Republicans in this case didn't really care. Now, the update to this story is that there has been a significant amount of backlash. In fact, their plan is backfiring, and even Republican members of Congress and Senate particularly are against the idea of sending the letter. Now, uh, Obama has responded to the letter. I want to give you a little bit of that. Let's take a look. Well, I, I think it's somewhat ironic uh, to see uh, some members of Congress wanting to make common cause with the hardliners in Iran. Uh, it's an unusual coalition. I think what we're going to focus on right now is actually seeing whether we can get a deal or not. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and take credit here. Uh, if anyone watched the show last night, you saw me flipping out over this, and I was screaming from the rooftops, maybe quite literally, uh, that uh, this was unprecedented. I'd never seen anything like this in my lifetime. After the show last night, the avalanche began. Not because of us, don't get me wrong. It's not like they were all on there. As you see, what did the Young Turks say? All right, here we go, right? But we were right, as usual. We were right about this, okay? Uh, it is unprecedented. Biden flipped at it. Anna's going to get to that in a second. Obama made these statements. And then finally the press was like, whoa, yeah. Did a little bit, a little bit of research. It turns out this is really messed up. The old saying is, as Anna alluded to, you know, politics stops at the water's edge. It used to, it doesn't anymore. And as you watch the president uh, speak there, Almost quoting the Young Turks from last night, mm -hmm. our banner on this story last night was, isn't it ironic, right, <laughs> referring to Iran. And he said right there, isn't it ironic? And the main point uh, I, I made is, these Republicans are sending a letter to the Ayatollah. They've become pen pals with the Ayatollah saying, hey, let's work together. You're hard right wing, we're hard right wing. Let's make sure we go to war. Right. It just shows you how divided politics is in the country, right? Because at this point, Republicans have no idea what the negotiation is. Nothing has been set in stone. They're going to meet again in Switzerland uh, in coming days to continue to hash out the negotiations. So they're already deciding that they are unwilling to work with the president. They're unwilling to work with any negotiation before they even know what the deal is. And that's ridiculous. So Anna makes a great point because uh, it, this is so symbolic of how the Republicans will oppose the president sight unseen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what his policy is. And in, at different times they've said it doesn't matter who you nominate. We will oppose whoever you nominate, sight unseen. And then the media turns around and says, we can't quite tell who's at fault for the bad relationship between the Republicans and the president. No, it's not 50-50. It's a no-brainer. The Republicans keep doing things that are unprecedented and outrageous. And to slap our president across the face while we're in the middle of negotiations is... Literally unheard of. Uh, Democrats make a good point. If they'd done it in the middle of the Iraq war and said, hey, we'd like to talk to the Iraqi leaders and tell them that we George Bush doesn't represent us, oh, my God. Or as I said yesterday on the program, if uh, Democrats went behind, behind Ronald Reagan's back and said to Gorbachev or other Soviet leaders, yeah. Reagan doesn't speak for us, don't do a peace deal with him. Wow. Wow. It would have been... Unbelievable, and it should be just as unbelievable today. Absolutely. Now, Biden did release some very strong statements about this letter that I do want to read to you guys. He says, in 36 years in the United States Senate, I cannot recall another instance in which senators wrote directly to advise another country, much less a longtime foreign adversary, that the president does not have the constitutional authority to reach a meaningful understanding with them. This letter sends a highly misleading signal to friend and foe alike 
that our commander-in-chief cannot deliver on America's commitments a message that is as false as it is dangerous. The decision to undercut our president and circumvent our constitutional system offends me as a matter of principle. As a matter of policy, the letter and its authors have also offered no viable alternative to the diplomatic resolution with Iran that their letter seeks to undermine. I think that part of the statement is probably the strongest, right? Because it's so symbolic and it's so clear of what Republicans usually do, right? They're against something, right? First of all, they're against a negotiation that none of us know nothing about. Like, we have no idea what the negotiation or the deal is. But then on top of that, they offer no real solution. Now, uh, Senator Tom Cotton has a solution, and his solution usually has to do with invading countries and going to war, which we'll get to later on. But is that really the viable solution here? Is that really going to disarm Iran of their nuclear program? Which, by the way, at this point, they're still denying has anything to do with building nuclear bombs. So Tom Cotton says, yeah, I have a viable alternative. Uh, they do exactly as we tell them to do. They uh, get rid of their entire nuclear program. Uh, they do it unconditionally. Yeah, that's like your opinion, man, but why would they do that? We're in the middle of negotiations. These Republicans act as if if they just said it like loudly enough, the other side would say, whoa, you guys are really strong. Okay, then I'll go ahead and do that, which is really a naive, childish way of thinking yeah. about foreign policy and how we deal with other countries. That's not the way the world works. Now, interestingly enough, uh, there are a number of Democrats who disagree with the letter. I mean, we, we all expected that. We're going to get to that. But there are Republicans that are disagreeing with the letter as well. And I love that. I love that they're speaking out against it. And they realize that this is actually very counterproductive to their cause. One of those senators is Bob Corker. He's actually trying to pass legislation that would... Um, basically have Congress approve executive actions before they are put through or any type of negotiation with a foreign country. Here's what he said. I knew it was going to be only Republicans on the letter. I just don't view that as where I need to be today. My goal is to get 67 or more people on something that will affect the outcome. So he's saying, look, if Congress wants to approve these negotiations, we can do so through legislation. We don't need to do this through sending letters to our so-called enemies. Yeah, I don't like Bob Corwich's plan either. He's trying to get 67 people to undermine the president in a more official way, right? Yeah. And he might get a lot of Democrats who support him because they think that their actual elected leader is Netanyahu. We I find that outrageous. Tom Cotton keeps referring to what Netanyahu wants us to do. Well, that's like his opinion, man. That he, he's the leader of a different country, not this country. Uh, but at least Bob Corker is sensible enough to know, no, you schmucks. If we're going to get Democrats on board to undermine the president, you don't do it this way. You don't do it publicly. You don't do it in the middle of negotiations. You at least are savvy enough to see what the result of the negotiation is. And then you pretend to be outraged and against it and try to get Democrats on board so you can pretend to be bipartisan and against the president. Instead, you jumped the gun. You went ironically nuclear here yeah. and you botched the whole thing we couldn't even undermine him in a smart way now Corker's not the only republican who disagreed with the letter we also have um, more including senator jeff flake who uh, supports corker's bill did not believe the letter was necessary the office of senator lamar alexander who's a uh, republican from tennessee said he has expressed his position by agreeing to co-sponsor corker's legislation that's his roundabout way of saying the letter was stupid dude we should have done that let's focus on what corker's trying to do um, now 
There are Democrats who disagree with the letter. Uh, let's go to, the, go to that video very quickly. Think of the Vietnam War and what was going on in this body during that war. The deep divisions between Democrats and Republicans, those who were against the war and for the war. And yet there was never, ever anything like we've seen with this letter sent by 47 Republican senators. When President Bush decided to invade Iraq, I voted no. I voted against his policies. And I spoke out publicly about my concerns about that war. But I never would have sent a letter to Saddam Hussein undermining the president before that war happened. Reflect for a moment the impact of that letter on our allies who were sitting at the table in Geneva, our allies who joined us in imposing the strictest sanctions in history on Iran to force them into negotiation, our allies sitting with Secretary Kerry and representatives of our government who must look at this letter from 47 Republicans and say, why are we wasting our time? What they're saying is, no matter what we do, because no agreement's been announced, no matter what we do, the Republican Senate is going to reject it. That's what the letter says. The chairs of the Senate Armed Services Committee, the chairs of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at that time all opposed President Bush's invasion of Iraq. But none of them penned a letter to Saddam Hussein. This letter is a hard slap in the face of not only the United States, but our allies. This is not a time to undermine a commander-in-chief purely out of spite. Let's stop rushing for the cameras and potentially hurt the Senate. Let's potentially hurt the country. Let's think about what's best for the country. I hope now that those 47 Republican senators will reflect on their actions and reflect on the impact that it'll have. I hope that the American people understand the president is embarking on a very difficult and delicate mission to try to negotiate a verifiable end to the nuclear arms race in the Middle East and specifically to end nuclear capability in Iran. He may not achieve it, but I respect him for trying. He is the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of America. He is the elected leader of our nation. And though many cannot accept it here in this chamber, he is the President of the United States, and he deserves our respect. So a couple of points here. One, I know Harry Reid's recovering from injuries, and that's why he's got his sunglasses on. But I really think he should keep it on for good. <laughs> kind of a Blues Brothers badass kind of look he's got going on there. All right, now on to substantive points. Uh, Dick Durbin makes a great point about allies. Mm -hmm. So we're not alone in negotiating with Iran. There's six countries that are negotiating with Iran. So in the middle of negotiations, could you imagine if the Russians, the Germans, the French, they had their parliament uh, or, or, or whatever the other legislative body they have, stand up and go, yeah, 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 Putin's full of crap. Merkel's full of crap. We're not going to listen to them, yeah. okay? That would be outrageous. And we'd be like, wait, 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 are you negotiating with us or are you not? I mean, are you on our side or are you not? This it, is insane. It looks like chaos. It looks like we can't get our shit together, which and then that allows, seems like we can't. And, and that allows Iran to say, you see, it's not our fault. America won't negotiate. It's America's fault. Right. And that totally undermines us. And then finally, look, I, I'm not above criticizing the commander-in-chief. I've done it a million times. But this is the one instance where you don't want to undermine the commander-in-chief because he's representing the country. Mm -hmm. If in the middle of North, uh, negotiations with North Korea, the Democrats had come out and reached out to 
Kim Jong-il at the time and been like, oh, don't listen to Bush. He's full of shit. We're not going to do any agreement with the North Koreans. I would have been like, no, don't do that. Are you crazy? Right. Those guys are unstable enough as it is. If you tell them that we're not going to actually abide by our agreements, they might go nuclear, which is actually the same problem we have in Iran. Now, Iran is far more stable than North Korea, but it's just a terrible idea and not what you do. It, because that's the only time you have to respect the office of the commander in chief. Otherwise, have at it, Hoss. Criticize them all you like. That's the point of a democracy. It's Ruben from San Jose calling. Um, I wanted to talk about the issue of racism and over-policing. There's, there's a lot of discussion going on from the police side of this, this recent um, discussion about racism in the police force. And they say things like, well, the reason, that black, the reason that there's so many police in black neighborhoods is because that's where the crime is. But um, it's really, it really is an issue of over-policing, right? You know, because... In New York, when the police decided to stop, you know, policing basically the entire New York area, the whole city didn't erupt into violence and things remained relatively normal. But if you look at the issue of how many police end up in uh, black neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods, it's always like there's this excessive amount of police there. And then you get this notion that um, police aren't racist, but they're actually, um, they're, they're operating out of experience. Well, if more police are stationed in poor neighborhoods and in black neighborhoods, then of course they're going to have more experiences, whether they be negative or positive, with black people. So I, I want to like um, point to the issue of over-policing as a fundamentally racist practice. And it can also be viewed as a classist practice too, right? But I mean, racism and classism are at an intersection when it comes to black communities because invariably... Black people, given less opportunities in society, are and being systemically discriminated against, are going to be, you know, more poor, uh, more poor, and um, and it's really like disingenuous for cops to say that they're not they're not carrying out fundamentally racist bias when they're over policing communities of color. Thank you. Hey Jay, it's Ryan from Phoenix. I wanted to touch base with you about that piece that went out about that keynote uh, talking about the heretics and the orthodoxy of the day. That's a brilliant way of setting up these ideas that are oftentimes put in a more depressing context of, oh, we need a paradigm shift. Oh, how difficult a paradigm shift is. But this other way of looking at it is much more inspirational. I think it has a way to motivate people and also the, the issues that, that, that was being applied to really empower people because it's local issues. It's talking about local resources, local empowerment, things that you can do with your own property, your own yard, your own chickens. I mean, these are truly ideas that can transform people's lives. I mean, it's one thing to be an informed consumer, but it's another thing to take the power into your own hand and be your own producer. And so, you know, I know that people's lives are busy, but we have all these resources that are around us, the space around us, our local geography, things that we can actually tap into and have power over our local uh, elected officials, our, our 
city council. These are the people that are making decisions about our local environment and can help us from making those long commutes, allow us to uh, ditch the, the car, take public transit, uh, reduce our uh, greenhouse gas from our own vehicles. You know, then if you tap into the regulations that some, sometimes are applied to people's private property, you know, like sometimes chickens are not allowed in your own backyard. And so if we can work with these local officials, we can empower ourselves and start using our local resources and our local geography to work for us and make the differences that we often look to big government to solve for us. And, you know, as a progressive, uh, the one thing that I do uh, relate to the right is, yes, big government can be a problem because we become so detached from it. And we really need to start thinking about how we get in contact or how we take our power back locally and speak with people who we have a direct connection to, people who have the time for us, not those who are overpaid and out of contact and out of touch with reality in Washington. Uh, with that, I just hope that uh, other people uh, start to embrace that local power of their own and reach out to your local cities, your local staff members, planning efforts, economic development, uh, the regulations, the zoning codes, your subdivision ordinances, all these things that are applied to your local environment, and you'll find that there's great opportunities to start making amends and empowering yourself. With that, thanks, Jay, for all you do. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Just a quick comment before I go. I want to draw your attention to something that is posted at the Best of the Left website. Uh, there was a, a, a big story. There was a hullabaloo a few weeks ago, th- three, three and a half weeks ago now, uh, a discussion involving Patricia Arquette's words at the Oscars and people responding to it on Twitter and a discussion about intersectionality broke out and Elon James White of This Week in Blackness was commenting on Twitter and Nicole Sandler, another progressive radio show host, was talking about it. And so, you know, if you heard the story, if you were immersed in it as it was happening, this is ancient news and, and something sort of exhausting that, that you don't need to have brought up again. If you sort of caught wind of the story at a glancing blow, you're more the person I'm, I'm directing these comments to because uh, I just want to let everyone know that this event, this story that happened, it, I, I found it to be sort of important in that it is uh, illustrative of uh, sort of problems, uh, breakdowns in communication, uh, misunderstandings between progressives, like all, all kinds of different things. So it, it's it's a good lesson to sort of go explore the conversation and, and, and see what happened and just learn from it. And so my my archivist instincts kicked in and, uh, you know, normally I sort of I, I try to sort of archive the progressive movement through this show, as you know, but a lot of this story took place in non-audio form, and so the sort of uh, the text-based parallel to uh, to a show like Best of the Left is uh, Storify, 
on Twitter. So if you if you caught wind of this story and you heard that people were talking on Twitter, and, and you know maybe you were listening to this week in blackness at the time, or you went and listened to the interview that I did on uh, Nicole Sandler's show. <clears throat> If you heard those things, but you know maybe you don't use Twitter or maybe you didn't take the time to search through the archives of people's feeds and who can blame you, uh, Storify is what allowed us to actually organize this conversation so that anyone can go and just read it from start to not quite finish, but start to middle that, that gets uh, you know a real good sense of of what happened and how it happened. So I, I thought, look, like someone needs to do this. No one else is gonna do it. Let's just do it. So Katie, uh the you know social media wizard who does best of left social media and, and all the activism content, uh she organized all of the tweets and and uh articles and things like that that sort of swirled around this conversation and then I went through and I annotated it with my commentary. So if you're interested in this story or, you know, you kind of heard about it, but you want to go see the original text or, I mean, frankly, this, this whole conversation was so uh, sort of fascinating to me. I feel like someone could write a dissertation using this uh, source content. So as far as I know, we're the only ones who put this together. And so if you go to the Best of the Left blog, look under, I mean, it's just the, the homepage. And it's posted March 16th, titled How Patricia Arquette's Words Started a Conversation That Revealed an Often Invisible Divide Within Feminism. You click on that blog post and it's an entire page uh, storify where you just start at the beginning, see how it all uh, started, and then work your way through this interesting conversation that happens, you know, at the time it was happening in real time between progressive people who generally agree on a lot of things, but were not seeing eye to eye on, on this particular thing. And, and I think by reading through the conversation, you can glean a lot of insights and information. So if you're uh, interested in that, I just wanted to draw your attention to it. And then lastly, of course, I mean, I said at the top of the show, but then now it's really true. This is the very last time I'm going to be able to remind you voting for the podcast awards is going on right now only for the next four days. So this is it. This is the, 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 the final run. Please set an alarm. Go to podcastawards.com. Vote for Best of the Left in the People's Choice category. Every day you, have, you can get put in four more votes before it's all over. And then, of course, uh, vote for the Majority Report as well in the News and Politics category. And uh, thanks to everyone who's been voting. If, if we win, it's going to be all because of you. Uh, we have won in the past, and it was all because of you. Majority Report has been winning the last three years, and it's all because of you guys and, and their listeners. I mean, we have an enormous amount of crossover, but you take my point. So let's see if we can give them a good run this year. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, 
All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past